next week, Lord willing, Brother Chuck will take us into another psalm. Uh, and then also thereafter for a while, and as uh, we told you, uh, thereafter, we'll be diving into Jeremiah, which is a long, lengthy, probably complicated book. Um, I don't think we know what we're <laughs> what the experience is going to be like yet. Uh, we haven't really studied this, so it'll be a good adventure, a good journey, lots of stuff in there. But a few more Psalms before we get there, and these are ones that you've requested. So one of our class members requested this one. And so we do it. Psalm 63. Does yours begin this way? A psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. Do you have that? Yeah, good. You should. Um, That's part of inspired scripture, just as are the verses which will follow. It tells us a lot in an economy of words, doesn't it? It tells us who wrote it. David did. Not all the psalms are written by David. Most are. This for sure. And it also tells us of his circumstances. He's in the wilderness of Judah. Anyone ever been there? Wilderness of Judah? Yeah, it's, if, if you have, you'll, you'll know it's the wilderness of Judah. It's dry, it's uh, arid, it's uh, rocky, um, it's um, inhospitable in many ways. It's, it's the, the, it's the desert. Which leads me to this question. David is the king of Israel at this time, which I I think I'll demonstrate to you in just a second. He's the king. Um, The king lived in Jerusalem, a cosmopolitan, well-equipped city. He uh, received kingly privileges there. He lived in a palace. Um, People showed due respect to him. Could you please tell me what the king of Israel is now doing, therefore? In the desert. Can you tell me? Charlie? Yes. Yes. Uh, Brother Charles is correct. Now, we know in reading other accounts in the Bible that David frequently uh, sought refuge in this area from who else who was pursuing him? Yes, Saul. See, Saul was the first uh, king of Israel, and jealousies aroused him uh, to seek David's life. So David often uh, sought refuge from him here. But Brother Charles is correct. That's not the case here. It's actually Absalom. And I'll tell you how we can land on this. If you look to verse 11 in this psalm, you will see that David, in the third person, refers to himself as the king. You'll see this as we examine the flow. He's actually referring to himself, but in the third person, the king. It's a literary device. So if he's the king now, he could not be running from Saul because he ran from Saul before he was the king. Saul was the king. David had not yet acceded to the office. So therefore, it must be Absalom. So this psalm, this song was probably written uh, in conjunction with the event recorded for us in 2 Samuel chapter 15. You could examine it at your leisure. There we get the historical narrative that tells us about terrible family dysfunction. And Brother Charles is correct. Uh, brought about by uh, as much by David's wrongdoing as, that, as by that of his, of his family members, in particular his son Absalom. Now my point is this. You need to know. Um, 
when you examine the scriptures, it is actually examining, it is actually relating, it is connecting to you. You think you are connecting to it, but it is connecting to you, no matter what your life situation is. The writers of the Bible did not write in a sterile, pristine, academic environment. They wrote in the desert of life. They had their wildernesses, so do you, so do I. That's the way it is. The people in those days had problems just as the people in this day do. I only offer it as a, an indirect way to encourage you. You must not think at the most desperate point of your life, the Bible doesn't relate. God doesn't connect. Church people are not for me. Oh, no, you got it all wrong. The very context of this um, lyric, that's what it is. It's lyrics put to music here, uh, come from a heart uh, uh, that has suffered tremendous loss. He lost the privileges of being king. He's no longer being treated with respect. He has lost his home. He's not in the palace anymore. He has lost the sense of harmony in his own family. Many here labor over the pain of fractured relationships between family members. You must not think it's just you. This is not to minimize your pain. It's to help you to know the writers of the Bible have probably experienced it, hence they write about it. The Bible is for you. And so he has terrible family disharmony. Can you imagine? He's being pursued by his own son. His son is in rebellion. His son not only wants to usurp his father's position as king, his son wants to take his father's life. This happens sadly sometimes. Some of you have family situations that break your heart. I just want you to know the Bible is for you. Don't let your pain distance you uh, from the word of God. Oh, no. It's your invitation to connect with it. So that's the context in which this king of Israel is writing. He's in the wilderness. And he says in verse 1, O God, can those two words only be uttered by a Christian? No. Anyone can. And everyone does. O God is just a generic acknowledgement of deity out there called by different names, by different people. Almost everyone, except for a minority on planet Earth, have a, an O-God concept. That just means awareness of a God, but it doesn't mean intimacy with God. The next words do. O God, you are my God. So awareness with God, which Gallup poll tells us just about everyone has, is entirely different from relationship with God, which frankly not everyone has. You cannot have this kind of covenant, my God relationship with God, unless it is established for you, unless he made a way for you. You cannot, you may fool yourself into thinking you can, but you cannot access him until he extends himself to you. You cannot reach him in the high places. Who do you think you are? You cannot get there. He has to extend himself downward. This he did. It's through the cross. Don't you see?
That's the bridge. That's the means by which we connect with an otherwise unapproachably high and holy God. So it is only people privy to the covenant with God, a relationship with him, who could utter phrase two in this psalm. Oh, God, everyone, particularly during trouble. Oh, God. In the military, we used to call it foxhole conversions. Everyone gets religious in times of conflict. You know what I mean? Anyone does it. But the next phrase, you are my God. A person laying hold of transcendent deity as if uh, there's a friendly relationship, as if there's benefit to be derived from it, as if nothing could interfere with it, as if it is possessed personally. Not everyone has that. You can because he offers it to everyone. You have to say, I accept I accept. So David did. Oh, God, you are my God. Remember, this is in the wilderness. He said, I shall seek you earnestly. Do you have a translation that renders that somewhat differently? I shall. Okay. Yes, that, and that is really accurate. Uh, Kay saying her Bible says, I, uh, early will I seek you. And that's because the word early and earnestly in the Hebrew are identical. So they can be rendered variously and, and it still be accurate. See, if you're seeking someone with fervence, with earnest, in earnest, you do it first thing in the morning. <laughs> so I will seek you earnestly. I will seek you early. In other words, the first priority of the day is the one you are most earnestly concerned about. For David, it was to seek God. He said, my soul thirsts for you. Could you please tell me how that, it's a metaphor, right? Because a, a soul doesn't literally thirst, does it? A, a physical body gets thirsty, but not a soul. So that's a metaphor. How does he stumble upon this metaphor, saying his soul is thirsty? Have any idea? Say again. He surely is doing that, absolutely. But why this choice of words? It's interesting. Bill? That's very, very good. Okay? Yes, indeed. It's his situation, isn't it? Remember, he's in the desert. And the most valuable commodity is water in a desert. You can't make it without water. I've been to this place. You dip down just a few miles from Jerusalem, and you're in the middle of nowhere. It's, uh, there are rock uh, protrusions all over. Water is hard to find. It's very seasonal. It's not very populated. It's hot. There's no place for shelter. Uh, you were there, Kay. You know, you know what? In fact, I went with Kay, as I recall. And so, uh, say again. Oh, yeah, excuse me. That's, that's what it was. <laughs> One of those things. So, so, so this metaphor, he's tasting. He's parched literally and physically, but he's overwhelmed by a parched soul. You have been, so have I. You can be in covenant relationship with God and you can have a my God connection, but have suffered such loss. You're hungry, you're thirsty, you're empty on the inside. So you find yourself crying out to God for sustenance on the inside. You are aware of the fact that you have him, you know this, he has you. There's no doubt in your mind. 
but things that you've experienced in life have gutted you. You're hungry. You're thirsty. That's more on your mind even than literal food and drink. And so you cry out with regard to the satisfaction of your parched soul. He says, my flesh yearns for you. And here it is, in a dry and weary land where there is no water. There's no water for my body. But more important to me is the reality that there is no water for my soul. That's what troubles me now. And so he goes on to say in verse 2, Thus I have seen you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory. So what is he saying? I think he's saying this. He's saying, I'm in the middle of nowhere. I've lost that which anyone in their right mind would say is the most precious in life. You've lost your position. You've lost your prestige. You've lost your job. um, You've lost your family. You've lost your home. But he reflects back on experiences prior to this that he had with God, during which time he saw he experienced God's power and glory. And that experience was not in the wilderness. It was in the sanctuary. It's at the tabernacle. It was at the altar of sacrifice. It's in the temple. It was at the place where an assembly of worshipers got together. If I can liken it to this, I'll say it was church. He was looking back on his congregational experiences of old before he suffered all this loss. And he remembers then in his life experience uh, that, that he experienced the power and glory of God in the midst of God's people. But he's not there anymore. He's not in church, if you will. He's forfeited access to it. He's now on the backside of the desert. But he's reflecting on what was because of its potential impact on now what is. It is in essence as if he is saying, my experience with your glory and power there in the assembly is one I believe can be reproduced for me even here in the wilderness. I've had that experience. Situations have changed, but you have not. As you were in the sanctuary, so too surely I can find you to be in the wilderness. For though the environment, the atmosphere, the circumstances have changed, my God and my relationship with him has not. In other words, if there is not some benefit beyond going to church for you, something's wrong. If it's just going to church on a Sunday and there is no generalized effect the other six days, something's wrong. If the public expression of your Christianity is limited to a building on a day, then something's wrong the other six days. David is saying the public corporate worship experience is wonderful and glorious. But if that's all there was, if I didn't access that God who I worshiped corporately, if I couldn't access him privately, then what would I have? So this concerns me for some go to church religiously 
but do not pursue the head of the church Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Some actually say, I am so needy, I can't wait for Sunday to go to church. But David would say, you know, the experience you had with God and God's people in church, you could have that (laughs) in the wilderness. In fact, the very purpose of going for church is to encourage you to draw nearer to this God so that you could pursue him when we're outside of the corporate assembly. And so sometimes today there's so much emphasis on going to church on a certain day in a certain building and doing things in a certain way that people get more lathered up about the way church is done than about being church people the rest of the time. That's very sad. That would mean your roots or mine are not very deep in the faith. So sometimes we hear critical words about you should dress a certain way, you should act a certain way, your liturgy should be a certain way, your songs should be a certain way. No, our heart should be set in cement when we gather together as an assembly of worshipers so that I can draw upon that wellspring when my soul is parched in the desert. And how you dress, what songs you sing, What comes place first, second, or third in an order of service? Do you really care that much? If so, I wonder if you're just going to church. I have to tell you something. In the old covenant, you would go to the temple, a localized place on a certain day and only for certain people. It was for Jewish people, it was in Jerusalem, it was in the temple, and it was on Shabbat on Saturday. But all that is simply a foreshadowing of an ultimate reality. If you're a new covenant person, you don't need to go to the temple, you is the temple. So what does that mean? You don't have a localized God anymore. I don't go to a building, I don't go, I don't go. I am the building in which God has taken up his abode. I can draw on him, therefore. The rest of the time around here, we say it's being living proof of a loving God to a watching world. I come to church to be encouraged in living out the Christ life the rest of the time. So if church is just buildings, liturgies, procedures, forms and all the rest. You're settling for less than what God wants you to have. David said. I'll make my sanctuary even in the wilderness. David said, I'll turn the wilderness into a worship experience. That's what he was saying. And so he goes on to say in verse 3, because your loving kindness, is it warm in here or am I coming down with something? Okay, good. I'm relieved. I'm glad we're uncomfortable together. I thought it was just me. All right. Listen, we'll be out of here in two hours. Don't worry. It is a little, uh, do you think someone could maybe make uh, access to, hey, thank you, Mark. Mark, are are you going to help or you just had enough, you're leaving? (laughs) Oh, Oh, that's true. We can relate to his experience. (laughs) Never mind. Close the doors. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) 
So I want to show you verse 3, which is intriguing. Because, David says this, because your loving kindness is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I read this, and I said, holy moly, I don't have a thing in common with this character. There's just no way I'm at his level of spirituality. Are you kidding me? He said the, that God's love means more to him than life itself. And I'm thinking, oh, man, this guy is eons apart from me. He's like a giant. And then I realized, no, he's not. He is me. I am him. We're all the same. You feel exactly the same way, if you're a Christian, as he does in verse 3. Look, look, look. Here's what he's saying. What good is it to have life and not have the favor of the giver of life? That's what he's saying. You're breathing. You're existing. But what if your existence was devoid of the favor, the love, the affection of Almighty God? What would that life be like? Someone said the supreme happiness in life is to be loved for yourself. No, that's not true. The supreme happiness in life is to be loved in spite of yourself. And that's what we have. David is saying, I've lost big. Family dysfunction, home, job, status, prestige. It hurts. It breaks me. But I realize now that I'm in the wilderness and have the opportunity to set my priorities, I realize that though all that weighs on me and hurts me, I could do without it all, but I couldn't do without your loving kindness. Is that not true? So David is not so much a cut above, is he? Verse 3 is for all of us. This is the mark of regeneration. If you're a verse 3 person, you just got evidence of your salvation. If you're not a verse 3 person, you may just be going to church on Sunday. Verse 3 says, I can't hang on to the things most precious in life. I cannot do that. They could evade my grasp. A loved one could become ill and die. A job could be lost. A home could be forfeited. All of these things are true. But then you come to the realization, though nobody in their right mind would welcome that, asks for it, nor seeks it, should it happen, I'll never forfeit what matters most, the favor, the unending, unconditional favor of the very giver of life. And all those other things have a shelf life. They all come to an end when this life comes to an end. But the love of God persists forevermore. So I memorized verse 3, and I want you to also. So without looking at it, let's give it a shot. I'll give you one phrase. You'll repeat it. We'll add to it till we get the whole thing. Then you'll have a whole verse, and you can feast on it. So because your loving kindness, would you say that with me? Because your loving kindness is better, is better. So now we say the whole thing. Because your loving kindness is better. Now we add to it. Than life. Just say, than life. Now we say the whole thing. Because your loving kindness is better than life. My lips. My lips. Say the whole thing. Because your loving kindness is better than life. My lips will praise you 
We'll praise you. Say it one more time. We'll praise you. Now let's run, run it together. Because your loving kindness is better than life, my lips will praise you. That's Psalm 63, verse 3. Some people have an easy time memorizing. Perhaps you don't. I don't. So I do it the way we just did it. One phrase, add another, run it all together, take it with you. Feed your mind. Let it distract you from all kinds of other things. There is loss. There is pain. There is the wilderness experience. In fact, it might be said of those of us whose citizenship is in heaven that all of life here is a wilderness experience. It's possible. But is not God accessible in the wilderness? And when everything else is stripped away, can we not see him to be more precious than silver and gold? Can we not access him more than ever? You could lose everything and may because we can't hold on to things we're not empowered to hold on to, but we're held on to by the my God relationship which by faith in him has been established. I don't in the wilderness say, oh God. I say, oh my God. Your loving kindness means more to me, is better to me than life itself. So that's what he says. And then he says in verse 4, David that is, I'll bless you as long as I live. I will lift up my hands in your name. Wait a second. He's not in church. But he's with the head of it all. He's not reserving his experience to the corporate congregational life. I love church, in particular this one, and the people in it. But there's more to it. I really love the my God relationship more. And being with you reminds me of it. So I I love to be with you. We sing of him. We speak of him. Your willingness to go serve him, this reminds me of him so that when we're apart from one another, I could draw near to him, you see? But, but, but David lifted up his hands in praise in the wilderness. By the way, a little bit of a sidelight. Um, do you know that lifting up your hands in a worship experience is acceptable? It's just not mandatory. <laughs> So we need a little balance here. Uh, I am personally not one prone to do this regularly, but not for theological reasons. It's for personality reasons. I'm not a demonstrative person in worship. I'm a reflective person. I usually prefer to bow my head and close my eyes and reflect on the Lord. But I'm not bothered by a more demonstrative person assuming a different worship posture. Neither should you be. So I pastored a church in another state once. And one time I was moved to raise my hand. I don't even think I raised two. I think I raised one. And the lady came to me and said, I knew when you got here we'd be going charismatic. (laughs) So I don't think you should make a theological association with a certain uh, body posture in worship. I just want to show you there is no biblically ordained correct 
posture in worship. Sometimes people fall to the ground. Sometimes people bow their heads. Sometimes people raise their hand. Usually when people raise their hand, at least in David's case, it's with palms up as if to say, I am empty, oh great God, would you fill me? Sometimes it's to say, I am here, you are there. It's a wonderful thing. What if that person doing that is doing it for personal attention? Yeah, but that doesn't invalidate the position. That's just a person's motive. But there's a whole bunch of people who bow their heads and close their eyes who basically are just getting a few winks. I mean, they ain't, you know. I mean, we can't be judging one another is all I'm trying to say. I think a person should feel, should feel freedom, you know, to express themselves to the Lord corporately as they see fit. So David raises his hand. Now, verse 5. My soul is satisfied as with marrow and fatness, and my mouth offers praises with joyful lips. Marrow and fatness is a Hebrew idiom for good grub. Man, we done be eating good. That's what marrow and fatness essentially is an indication of over here. Now, I find this to be quite interesting because if you look back at verse 1, you'll see it says, my soul thirsts for you. Now in verse 5, my soul is satisfied. Do you notice how he moved from verse 1 to verse 5 and an entirely different frame of mind, an entirely different emotional uh, uh, state of affairs? What happened? He took his grievous hurt and loss. Nobody has a right to tell someone, don't feel that way, don't weep, don't grieve, don't cry. We must never say that. He took it to the right place. He reckoned on his God, who he could find even in the wilderness. He remembered his past experiences with God and how God had blessed him, provided for him, seen him through. He realized, though everything else has changed, God has not. And he basked in the sunlight of that companionship and that relationship, which would not let him go. And he finds satisfaction. He found satisfaction for his otherwise parched soul. See it? I'll tell you why God gave us Psalm 63. Because we could do the same. We could do the same. So then he says in verse six, "When I remember you on my bed, so he's going to sleep or trying to. It's nighttime. When I remember you on my, my bed, I meditate on you in the night watches. So what's happening at night? That's when." Whatever you've dealt with during the day is accentuated in your mind. That's when all of the things in the day that distracted you from pain no longer work. That's when your pain is like a loudspeaker between your two ears. That's when your fears, your anxieties, your depression, all the rest are amplified. Because there's nothing to distract. The computer is off. There's no TV. There's no radio. There's no distracting conversation. There's no sun. It's just dark. It's just you. Sometimes with the piercing silence of your own anguished thoughts. Undoubtedly, David had those. Do you realize how vulnerable he is at night in the desert? People are out to get him. Do you realize how little he could defend himself at night? Do you realize what must have been going through his mind? to taste the hatred of one's own son, to have fallen from the palace to impoverishment, uh, to have your life threatened, to be falsely accused. I mean, all the rest, the anxiety, the worry, the fears he must have been experiencing, no shame in that. What did he do with it? A friend of mine 
um, he, uh, he remembered God. Do you know that's a mind thing? This fits in exactly with what we're talking about on uh, Wednesday night. It's a battle for the mind. It's a mind thing. His thoughts are on all of the loss, all of the hurt. Uh, but he chose to remember God. He chose to remember God. I, it's called the principle of distraction. I, I call it that. Your, your mind is going to be setting on something. You need some means of distracting it. I just use words. So let's say he, let's say a guy like David, me, you, is not experiencing joy, for instance. Do you take the word joy? It's at night. You can only hear your own thoughts. You distract them from bringing you down. And you use the word joy, you just use each letter as an opportunity to think about God. J, uh, you might think but you might think about joy. You might say, God, you're the source of it. I wish I could experience it more than I am. I know the problem is probably mine, not yours, for you have provided it. Oh, God, would you help me more to be able to tap into the experience of joy which you have given? God, I know it's not happiness. I know joy persists in spite of circumstances. So you go through that. Then you get the O, and you may say, God, you are over everything. God, I am inundated. I am oppressed by the realities of life here. I feel like they overwhelm me, but I'm speaking to one who's over it all. I love that. You could say, God, uh, that gets me over it all. I'm setting my mind on you above. And because you're over it all, you can see puny little old me even here on the backside of the wilderness. In fact, you know my thoughts before I even utter them. God, I'm overwhelmed that though you are so big, so over everything else, you know me. And then the next letter is why. Maybe maybe yearn. Maybe, maybe you want to say, oh, God, I yearn for things I can't hang on to. It troubles me. I cannot hang on to the well-being of my family members. I cannot hang on to financial stability. I cannot hang on to these things. Oh, God, satisfy, therefore, my yearning for you because I can never forfeit you. I challenge you to do something like that, and I'm telling you what you're going to do. You're going to distract yourself from thoughts which would otherwise drive you into a downward spiral of darkness and depression that you cannot get out of. Do the work. It's work, and that's why we don't do it. We take the path of least resistance. I've always felt this way. I've always thought this way. I am this way. That's not true. You can distract yourself by doing just what David did. When I remember you on my bed, I meditate. Don't you see? That's a thought thing. That's a mind thing. I meditate on you. In the night watches. I defy you to do this. I'll tell you what will happen. You may not get to sleep. But I have to tell you, one sleepless hour or two in rich communion with God may be worth losing a little sleep. But what's more likely to happen is you'll doze off. Why? Because the evil one who's playing with you does not want you enjoying your time with God. He'll let you doze off and go to sleep. Sometimes I memorize scripture and meditate it instead of counting sheep. Now, if you're having a hard time going to sleep because of the throes of the day and you're a sheep counter, cool if you want to, I would rather meditate on Scripture like Psalm 63.3. I do it slow. Because your loving kindness is, not was, not will be, is better. It exceeds something. What? Life itself. 
Mm-hmm. I will praise you. So you do that. Generally, in a lot of cases, you won't finish the whole verse. You'll be, you'll be gone, Phil. But I just want to encourage you, do not take anxiety, depression, worry, and all that stuff, pardon the expression, lying down. <laughs> do something about it. Do something about it. So, so David did this. And then he says, verse 7, you've been my help. And in the shadow of your wings, I sing for joy. It's another metaphor, a shadow of your wings. could be a reference to the cherubim in the Holy of Holies and their wings, a symbol of protection. Uh, more likely, it's another metaphor uh, taken from bird life because, you know, baby chicks, by instinct, when cold or frightened, run to seek shelter under the wings of the mothering hand. What they do instinctively, we have to do deliberately. David said, I, 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 I've been stripped of everything, so therefore I run uh, under the shadow of your wings. My soul clings to you. Verse 8. See the word clings? Does anyone have a translation that says cleaves? Anything like that? Clings or cleaves? It's the same word from Genesis where it says, uh, with reference to marriage, for this cause a man shall leave father and mother and cleave to his wife. Same word. David is saying, I'm going to be in hot pursuit of you (laughs) for you are the one who loves me no matter what. You are the one whose shadow I I need to hide under. You are are the one who's available to me even in the wilderness. You're the one whose love is more precious than life. He's saying, I'm going to be in hot pursuit of you just like a romantic uh, partner is pursuing, is being pursued uh, by his or her partner. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. Interesting progression. Verse 1, my soul thirsts for you. Verse 5, my soul is satisfied. Now verse 8, my soul clings. See what just happened? Can you see why God allows the wilderness experience? He helps us to settle our priorities. We find out he matters most. The relationship with him is better than life. And then we praise him even in the wilderness and our soul is satisfied. And then it becomes habitual, addictive, habit-forming. And we we say, my soul will cling to you like never before. I just found out, did you, why God allows the wilderness experience? Yeah, get closer. Absolutely. Now verse 9. But those who seek my life to destroy it will go into the depths of the earth. They will be delivered over to the power of the sword. They will be a prey of foxes. Interesting. Enemies, those who hated him, drove him into the wilderness, but we don't even hear a word about him until verse (laughs) 9. Why? It's not about your enemies. It's not about those who pursue you, abuse you, neglect you, or abandon you. Not really. It's about you seeking help under the shadow of the Lord's wings. I didn't say forget about them. Don't misunderstand. I'm just saying don't make the focus of your life them. Make your focus of your life the one who loves you most, not the one who hurt you most. And so he does respond to them. But notice just in a couple verses at the end, what does he say? In essence, he says, God, take care of business for me. It's a rather loose paraphrase, but that's essentially what he's saying. It's the New Testament principle. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. That's all. David is saying, you know, I got enough to do. I'm filled to overflow in lifting up my hands and praise to you even in the wilderness and worshiping in the wilderness and realizing how important you are, how essential you are to me. God, you take care of this other stuff. 
the one who's abused, the one who's abandoned, the one who's neglected, the one who's hurt, whatever. And the closing verse, but the king, that's David, will rejoice in God. Others are on the run from God. No, no. But the king, King David, will rejoice in God. In fact, everyone who swears by him will glory, for the mouths of those who speak lies will be stopped. So let me just give you a summary statement of the psalm. It's this. You may not be able to rejoice in your situation, for sure, but you can rejoice in your Savior. See the difference? That's Psalm 63. Let's be real. You may not be able to rejoice in your situation, but you can rejoice in your Savior who's available to you in every situation. That's the difference between being a religious person and a relationship person. That's the difference between merely going to church on Sunday and having a covenant relationship with the head of the church all through the week. See the difference? So my fellow pilgrims, that's what we are. We're David. We're just like David. We're, we, <laughs> we're all the same. We have wilderness experiences and all the rest. May you and I cleave, cling more tightly to the Lord Jesus than ever before because his love for us, in spite of us, is indeed better than life itself. Lord Jesus, we believe it. Now we want to act on it. Even the best that life has to offer is fleeting. It cannot be a guarantee, but you can. So thank you so much. We can forfeit everything but perish the thought that we should ever forfeit divine favor. We would have no hope. But thank you for giving us hope. You tell us nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Not family dysfunction, not loss of job, not homelessness, not being in the wilderness. And for this, we are very grateful. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, God bless you folks. See you next time.